0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 13 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Ullman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Richard the Kingmaker and Edward the King 1464 to 1483. While the struggle with the last survivors of the Lancastrian faction was still in progress, the governance of England had been in the hands of the Neville clan. Richard of Warwick, the kingmaker, the head of the house, and by far its most able representative, had been continually in the field as the leader of King Edward's armies. George Neville, Archbishop of York, Warwick's brother was chancellor. John Neville, Lord Montague, another brother, was regarded as the king's confidential counselor. He had also commanded at Hexham and Hedgley Moor. William Neville, Lord Falkenburg, had been made Earl of Kent for his services at Towton, and several other members of the family were high in place about the king. The house and its connections had formed the backbone of the Yorkist party, and its members thought themselves entitled to good payment for their services. If Edward IV had been a weak ruler, the domination of the Nevilles might have continued all through his reign. But the young king was far from being a nonentity. He was able, obstinate, selfish, and ungrateful, the last of men to suffer himself to be made the tool of his mother's relations. As long as the Lancastrians still made head against him, he was content to use the services of Warwick and his brothers, but now that his throne was safe, he intended to rule after his own will and inclination. He was quite competent to do so. At Mortimer's Cross and Towton he had already shown that he was a good soldier. He had a clear head, a hard heart, and no scruples. His weak point was a love of pleasure and debauchery, which sometimes led him to waste his time in idleness. But when prompt and decisive action was required, he always shed his sloth and sent to work with an energy and ability which startled his enemies. The first rift between the king and the nobles appeared in the year 1464, just after the last hopes of the Lancastrians had been crushed at Hexham. The king was now twenty three, and it was high time for him to wed. With his apparent consent, Warwick commenced a negotiation for his marriage with the sister of the Queen of France. The Neville foreign policy had always been to ally England to France and to distrust the king of France's rival, Charles the Rash, the great Duke of Burgundy. Suddenly, Edward announced that the French match must be dropped because he was married already. He had become infatuated with a beautiful widow seven years older than himself. Elizabeth Woodville was the daughter of Lord Rivers, a Lancastrian peer, and her first husband, Sir John Gray, another prominent Lancastrian, had fallen at St. Albans. Caring nothing for the disparity of rank nor for the disloyal traditions of Elizabeth's family, Edward had secretly married her and kept the matter dark for six months between May and October of 1464. When he vouchsafed to declare what he had done, Warwick had at once to abandon his negotiations with Louis XI, and was much displeased at the manner in which he had been tricked. The king soon began to display an exaggerated fondness for his wife's numerous relations, to place them about his person and to seek wealthy marriages for them. We cannot doubt that his conduct was dictated by policy and not by a real regard for the Woodvilles and Grays, who were a greedy and grasping crew. He wished to surround himself with persons entirely dependent on his favor as a check on the haughty and self-reliant Neville clan. For the same reason, he created a number of new peers to counterbalance the Neville family group in the House of Lords. For two years there was no open breach between Edward and Warwick, but in June of 1467 the King dismissed George Neville, the Chancellor, openly disavowed Warwick and his policy, and put himself entirely in the hands of his new friends. His change of views was completed by the formation of an alliance with the Duke of Burgundy, to whom he gave his sister Margaret in marriage. To break so rudely and openly with the Neville's was unwise. The family was powerful in nearly every part of England, and Warwick had been for so long the figurehead of the Yorkist party that most of its older members looked to him, and not to the King, for guidance. Moreover, the Woodvilles were making themselves hated for their pride and shameless greed. A typical instance of their conduct was the marriage of young John Woodville, the Queen's brother, to the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, who was old enough to have been his grandmother, but possessed wealth enough to tempt him into the match. Noting the unpopularity which was gathering around Edward, Warwick began to make quiet preparations for resuming his old position, even though he might have to use force in the process. He enlisted in his cause the king's brother, George, Duke of Clarence, an ambitious and discontented young man, by giving him the hand of his eldest daughter, Isabel Neville, on whom, since the great earl had no male issue, the larger half of his vast estates would some day devolve. In July of 1469, thinking matters ripe for his interference, Warwick set his followers to work, His nephew, Sir Henry Fitzhugh, and his cousin, Sir Henry Neville, took arms in Yorkshire with a program much like that which the Lord's Appellant had used against Richard II, or the early Yorkists against Suffolk and Somerset. The king must be freed from unworthy favorites, and provided with a respectable and responsible ministry, that is, replaced in his former dependence on the House of Neville. This rising is often called the Rebellion of Robin of Reedsdale, an assumed name adopted by one of its leaders, Sir John Conyers. Warwick had passed the word around among his friends and adherents to support the rising, but did not appear himself. Soon the rebel army swelled to formidable proportions, moved south, and routed the troops which the king sent against them under the earls of Pembroke and Devon. At Edgecote Field, near Banbury, Edward, after the battle, saw his army disperse and fell into the hands of the rebels. Warwick and Clarence then appeared upon the scene and assumed the custody of the king's person. Edward was treated with formal courtesy but placed for a time in safe keeping at Middleham Castle, a Neville stronghold in Yorkshire. His favorites fared much worse. The queen's father Rivers, her brother John Woodville, And the earls of Devon and Pembroke were all beheaded by the rebels with Warwick's full approval. Greedy upstarts as they were, they did not deserve to die without a trial, and their bloody end shocked the whole Yorkist party. After keeping the king two months under restraint, from August to September 1469, Warwick released him, thinking that he had been taught the necessary lesson and would for the future refrain from offending the Neville clan. As a matter of fact, Edward's spirit was not broken, and his only thought was to revenge himself on the Earl and Clarence. Six months later he got his opportunity. A Lancastrian insurrection broke out in Lincolnshire in March of 1470, and to suppress it the king gathered a large army whose leaders were carefully chosen from among the enemies of the Neville's. After dispersing the rebels near Stamford in a fight often called Loosecote Field the king suddenly wheeled about and marched against Warwick and Clarence who were coming from Coventry to join him with a small force he was resolved to treat them just as they had treated him in the preceding year having caught them unprepared he hunted them across england and finally forced them to embark at dartmouth and flee to france march 1470 the great earl had fallen so easily because he had not been granted time to call together his numerous adherents. If the king had lingered, Warwick's expulsion would have cost him much heavy fighting. He was now master of his realm again, but not for long. His enemy was bent on revenge, and had made up his mind to forget all his old grudges against Margaret of Anjou and the Lancastrians. At the court of Louis Eleventh the Earl met the exiled queen and made his peace with her. They agreed to join their forces in order to crush Edward IV, and Warwick undertook to replace Henry VI on the throne. As a pledge of reconciliation, his younger daughter, Anne Neville, was betrothed to Prince Edward, the heir of the Lancastrian house. Warwick soon set to work to use all his powers of intrigue His emissaries overran the whole of England, bidding his partisans to be prepared for a rising in the autumn, while Queen Margaret sent similar warnings to the survivors of her party. In September the plot had been prepared. Lord Fitzhugh, a brother-in-law of Warwick, got up an unimportant rising in the north to attract the king's attention. Edward took the bait, and when he had reached York, the earl slipped across the channel and raised his banner in Devonshire, a district where the Lancastrian party was strong. When the signal was given the retainers of the Neville's rose in arms in every shire, and the king had to turn southward. He had only reached Nottingham when he found that Warwick's brother Montague had led over to the enemy the whole of the levies of the Midlands, which had been gathered together to resist the invasion. The king's own soldiery began to melt away from him, and in, in despair, he rode hard for the coast and took ship at Lynn with his young brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, Lord Hastings, and a few scores of faithful followers. He reached the Netherlands in safety and was kindly received by Charles the Rash, his brother in law. The Duke of Burgundy was anxious to oblige any enemy of his old foe, Louis XI of France. The power of the Nevilles had been vindicated and Warwick might indeed call himself the kingmaker when he drew Henry VI from his prison in the tower and replaced him on his long-lost throne. Edward had been beaten without a blow struck, and his wife and young daughters were at the earl's mercy as hostages. He did not, however, disturb them when they took sanctuary at Westminster. The position of the conqueror was a difficult one. He was distrusted by the Lancastrians and himself distrusted them. Clarence, his chief supporter, was discontented at the restoration of the old king. He had hoped that his father in law would have given him the crown instead of replacing it on the head of Henry. Edward was known to have many partisans, but how many no one could say, since they had been given no opportunity of displaying themselves. Meanwhile, a ministry partly composed of Warwick's friends, partly of Lancastrians, was put in power, and for the moment all was quiet. Queen Margaret and her son very unwisely lingered in France. They should have crossed the channel when their party had triumphed. In March 1471 came the last development of the long strife between the kingmaker and his former master. Edward IV was furnished with 50,000 florins and 1,200 mercenaries by the Duke of Burgundy and sailed forth from Holland to try his fortune once more. He landed in Yorkshire giving out at first that he was only come to claim his father's duchy, and did not ask for the crown or intend civil war. By the inexcusable carelessness of Montague, who was commanding in the north, he was allowed to slip across the Trent and to reach Leicester, where a considerable body of his partisans joined him. It seemed probable, however, that he would soon be crushed by numbers, for hostile forces began to close around him on all sides, and Warwick himself advanced to Coventry, which had been appointed as the mustering place of his host. From this rather desperate position Edward was rescued by the treachery of his brother George of Clarence. The Duke had been commissioned to raise the western Midlands in King Henry's name, but when he approached Coventry he swerved aside and joined the invaders with seven or eight thousand men. This made Edward so strong that Warwick could not fight him until he had received reinforcements. While the Earl was waiting, his adversary made a desperate dash for London, and was admitted within its walls by a sudden rising of its partisans, April 11, 1471. But Warwick was now close at his heels with all his host, and till he was beaten off, nothing had really been secured. Accordingly, the Yorkists marched out, and met their pursuers at Barnet, where on April 14th a desperate battle took place. It was fought in a dense fog, a circumstance which proved fatal to the great earl, for two corps of his army mistook each other for enemies and came to blows. When they recognized each other, each thought the other had deserted to the king, and both cried treachery and fled. The remainder of the kingmaker's men stood their ground, but were overwhelmed by numbers and cut to pieces. Warwick himself and his brother Montague were both left dead upon the field. On the very day of Barnet, Queen Margaret and her son landed at Weymouth and put themselves at the head of an army which the Beauforts had gathered in Somerset and Devon. Hearing of Warwick's defeat and death, they resolved to make their way toward Wales, a great Lancastrian stronghold. But by a forced march, King Edward threw himself across their path and forced them to fight at Tewkesbury with the unfordable Severn at their backs. After a hard struggle the Lancastrians were beaten from their position, and all who could not fly fast were slain, captured, or driven into the river. The young Prince Edward was killed as he cried in vain for quarter, and called on the name of his brother Clarence. With him fell the Earl of Devon and Lord Wenlock. Edmund, the last Duke of Somerset of the Beaufort line, was captured and executed with ten other prisoners of rank, May 4, 1471. Queen Margaret also fell into the victor's hands. Her life was spared, but with a perfectly gratuitous cruelty, Edward ordered her harmless husband to be secretly put to death in the tower. Now that his only son was dead, Henry was no longer valuable as a hostage and was made away with. His murderer gave out that he died of pure displeasure and melancholy. So ended in one common disaster the dynasty of Lancaster and the great house of Neville. The male line of John of Gaunt was extinct. The female line was only represented by the King of Portugal and the Queen of Castile, who descended from two of his daughters, and by the Lady Margaret Beaufort, the last of the Somersets. She had a son by her first husband, Edmund Tudor, Earl of Richmond, and this young boy was one day to reign under the name of Henry Seventh. The vast estates of Warwick were divided between his two daughters, the Duchess of Clarence and the Princess Anne, the widow of Prince Edward. The latter was forced to marry the king's youngest brother, Richard, Duke of Gloucester, so that all the broad Neville, Montacute, and Beecham lands passed into the hands of the royal family. Edward had yet twelve years to reign. They contrast strongly with the troublous times between 1460 and 1471, for their annals are lacking in interest and incident. The king was strong-handed enough to rule as he pleased, and might have become a tyrant had he been more restless and energetic. But habits of sloth grew upon him, and he wasted much of his time on pleasures lawful and unlawful, and on riotous living." Before he was forty, he had ruined his constitution and had grown grossly corpulent and unwieldy. His rule was far more autocratic than that of the Lancastrian House. Between 1478 and 1483, he did not call Parliament together, and he often indulged in the unconstitutional practice of raising benevolences or forced loans not sanctioned by parliamentary authority. But he can hardly be called an oppressive ruler. His arbitrary acts did not affect the bulk of his subjects, and his financial exactions were moderate. For he was much wealthier than his predecessors, owing to the vast amounts of confiscated land belonging to the followers of Lancaster and Warwick, which had fallen into his hands. After 1475, he had another source of revenue. In alliance with Charles of Burgundy, he invaded France and advanced as far as Peronne in Picardy but the wily Louis XI offered to buy him off by paying down a great sum of money and guaranteeing him an annual pension as long as peace should endure. Edward threw over his ally and greedily closed with the offer. By the Treaty of Pequigny, 13th of August, 1475, he received 75,000 gold crowns and ready money, 50,000 more as a ransom for the unfortunate Margaret of Anjou, And the guarantees for the payment of fifty thousand crowns per annum as long as he should live. He at once retired from France, and for the rest of his life was paid the subsidy with great regularity. The main anxiety of Edward during these years arose from the discontent of his brother, George of Clarence. The treachery of the Duke in the years fourteen sixty nine and seventy could never be forgotten, and the king always viewed him with suspicion. Clarence did his best to justify these doubts his behaviour was captious insolent and overbearing in 1477 he provoked edward to great wrath by putting to death on his own authority and without a proper trial a lady named ancaret twindow whom he accused of having caused by sorcery the death of his wife the duchess isabel on another occasion he tried to marry margaret the heiress of burgundy without edward's leave In 1478 the brothers had a violent quarrel about the arrest and execution of some of Clarence's followers for treason. It ended in the duke's being sent to the Tower. Soon after, Edward called together a Parliament, and accused his brother in person before the peers. Clarence was, he said, incorrigible, and he would not be answerable for the weal, public peace, and tranquillity of the realm if such loathly offenses should be pardoned. The lords could do no less than find the accused guilty when the king acted as prosecutor. A fortnight later, a false, fleeting, perjured Clarence was put to death in the tower. A tradition dating back to the very year of his execution declares that he was drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine, but nothing is really known of the details of his end. Edward survived his brother for five years. His health was steadily growing worse but he made no attempt to break himself of his evil habits, and as he became less fit for business, handed over much of the conduct of affairs to his youngest brother, Richard Duke of Gloucester, and his chamberlain, Lord Hastings, the two faithful partisans who had never shrunk from his side in all the troubles of the evil days in 1469 through 71. The last important event in the reign was a short war with Scotland in 1482, caused partly by the raids of the moss troopers of the border into Northumberland, partly by the intrigues of the exiled Duke of Albany, who stirred up England against his brother James III for his own private ends. Gloucester held the command since the king was too ill to take the field, and distinguished himself by retaking Berwick which had been held by the Scots since Margaret of Anjou made it over to them in 1461. He ravaged the lowlands till the Scottish king sued for peace, but the negotiations were still unfinished when news came that King Edward was dead. Though only in his 42nd year his constitution was worn out, and he succumbed to an attack of ague of no special virulence. March 30, 1483. Thoroughly selfish, cruel, and debauched, he was one of the worst men who have sat on the English throne, But it cannot be said that he was an inefficient ruler. The country was not unprosperous under his hand, in spite of all the wars and rumours of wars which had passed over it. The nobles and their retainers had been thinned by the sword and axe, but the storm had passed far above the heads of the majority of the nation. Taxation was light, trade and commerce were not unprosperous. England, in short, has seen much worse days under much better kings. End of